0: Hey friends, as you're coming in with food and getting settled, I um, just want to welcome you again. Uh, and It's a real privilege today to welcome Dr. Jeff Baker to be with us to lead this uh, seminar uh, on the topic of autism and human flourishing. Dr. Baker is the director of the Trenton Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and the History of Medicine, where Paul Curlin has his job. Um, and uh, Dr. Baker is a professor of pediatrics and history, and he's practiced for over 25 years as a general pediatrician. And I've heard uh, many, many reports of what an amazing pediatrician he is. Uh, And um, he has a particular focus on children with autism and special needs. And his historical work, he has a Ph.D. in um, medical history, has uh, also centered on child health. He's author of the book, The Machine in the Nursery, um, and is the kind of leading authority on the history of neonatal medicine. Um, He's directed the History of Medicine program here at the Trenton Center, he teaches the medical school curic- student curriculum. He's directed the Duke Autism Clinic, and continues to engage with oh, it as okay. its primary care liaison. So, in short, he's quite a busy man, um, and we're grateful that he's here to share with us on this topic: autism and human flourishing. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Baker. It's
1: <laughs> a moment also to just thank the Trent Center for the space yes. and food today, and for you know, so in lots of ways, Trent Center is critical to this meeting, and so thanks. Yeah.
2: Okay, well, thank you, and, and good to see all of you, um, and especially good to see all of you when I know that I'm in competition with another event going on at this moment.
3: <laughs> so I need to think
2: of a, of, a, of a connection here, and there actually really is a connection, because uh, um, autism is kind of engaged in culture wars, if, you haven't, if you're not aware of that. Now, people in the health professions are mainly aware of what culture war about autism vaccines,
3: you know, and I'm a
2: pediatrician, so, you know, attacking vaccines is kind of like urinating on the American flag, but it it really hits a nerve for us, that's the war we're we're aware of, (coughs) but that's not the only culture war, and actually, if you, um, I think one of the things that a lot of people, I think very few of my colleagues realize, is that this is a culture war, it's a little bit, I guess a little bit analogous to the war on terrorism, if you will, where so many Americans think of it as us versus them out there. But if actually, the, actually, you know, the, the them, the others, are themselves very divided. You know, it, Islam is in a huge civil conflict over its meaning. And in fact, the autism world is the same thing. It's very much divided from within as well. And um, I thought what would be fun to do, So I'm a historian and a clinician. I'm not a theologian. Um, so I thought I would try to set this up by talking a bit about autism's history and the emergence of these conflicts. And then... Th- um, I'm hoping that won't take too much time, but it'll give you some background. Um, and then to, uh, to spend most of our time talking about how we respond to this conflict, and maybe whether we should reframe it, or you know, the way it's being framed in our culture, is that really the right way to frame it? And can we, um, we can talk about whether we should be reframed from the standpoint of spirituality, or how it would be reframed from the standpoint. I would thank this group. I'm kind of guessing you're going to want to talk about how to be framed from a Christian theology standpoint. And you'll hear me listening more and more as we get into that part of the conversation because uh, this is just a, this is not my day job. <clears throat> but I'm interested in what you will have to say. All right? Does that sound okay? Um, so the quick overview, um, and you know, historians, we like to write really long books, and we love nuance, which means we talk so long about something, we show so many exceptions that you come out thinking, I can't figure out what the pattern was. I'm going to try really hard to, to actually stand back and give you a sense of the biggest themes in this story. Uh, that I think are worth understanding. Um, I, I'm not going to give you the DSM 5 definition, which is frightfully boring to read. Um, I think it's more important if you understand these big cultural currents behind autism and why they, why they are, um, are so divisive. Um, and they really are. So, we're going to briefly talk about how autism is discovered in these called three paradigms of autism. A way, really different and totally incompatible ways, incompatible ways to think about autism as an emotional disturbance, as a debility or an illness, and as an identity. And then we'll turn to how we respond, how to respond to that. So the discovery phase. Autism is a, is a you know, I, I struggle over whether to say disorder, syndrome, disease, whatever. This is the whole conflict, but I've got to say something, so I'll say a... a <coughs> a disorder, <laughs> an entity, that was that has a birth date. It, it, it has, it, it's not been described as something since the like measles for a thousand years. Um, the birth date was in 1943 by this man, Leo Kanner, who is probably the, the leading child psychiatrist in the United States. Um, didn't have much competition then, there weren't many. <laughs> but head of child psychiatry at, at Johns Hopkins. And in 1943, he wrote a paper with this title, Inborn Autistic Disturbances of Affective contact that he described what he believed was an entire was a new syndrome that had never been described before. The paper uh, it, it's worth reading today. It, it reads far better than anything read in a medical journal today and it's a series of case histories uh, written you know really nicely constructed narratives. The first such case history was this boy Donald T. Donald T was born in Mississippi uh, he uh, the story is that although he didn't breastfeed very well, he essentially developed normally as an infant, maybe seemed a little bit aloof second year of life uh, he, he um, seemed to not engage with adults by the time he was two by the time he was two and a half a little bit vague he developed language he could recite all 30, is it 33 questions in the Presbyterian Catechism? I remember it referred... He could do all the questions and answers in the Presbyterian Catechism. Here's one of my connections with theology. <coughs> um, that literally encounters the script in, in his account. He could name all the presidents. Um, he could... Uh, forwards and backwards. Um, and yet he couldn't use language to formulate a question or to make a request. It was all about repetition. He didn't seem to have any interest in his parents. Instead, he seemed to engage and interact with objects, Um, and loved to spin and hold balls and study them and the like. Connor was extremely struck by this. He had ten other cases that he wove together. And the cases, they're not all the same. They have a lot of different things going on. But he thought what tied all of them together was what Connor called extreme autistic aloneness. Autistic was a word used to describe the schizophrenic who had withdrawn into his or her world of, alternative reality. So it's actually a word he borrowed. Extreme Autistic Aloneness, he called this a profound inability to relate to others. And this is the was sort of seems the was seen as the core definition of autism. It sounds an awful lot like an inability to love, right? <laughs> Doesn't it sound a lot like that? Um, and uh, imagine what it would be like to be a parent receiving this diagnosis. Um, why these children were this way um, wasn't clear in Connor's initial paper, um, <clears throat> uh, but it, it was really just a, it was a description. One year after Connor's paper, Hans Osberger uh, published a paper in Austria. He was a uh, div- he was a pediatrician actually in uh, in, uh, in Austria. worked in a, a, sp- a special school for uh, for children with I think what I call today is learning disabilities. He had worked there in the 1930s, and he described a set of children among that population with what he called autistic psychopathy. He used the same word. Um, these children, unlike Connors, had language. And they could use language, but they didn't seem to know how to converse. Uh, they, in fact, they seemed to want to converse in one direction, sir. Was he aware of
4: Connors' paper?
2: Um, uh, we do not believe so. Uh, the controversy is more where Connors had heard about Osberger's earlier work, and there's a lot written on that. Um, but... Uh, I personally would argue that this word was shared by the two of them because autistic was a word used for schizophrenia, and both of them drew upon this, uh, as they're describing this group of kids at the same time. Um, the difference with, again, he describes a much higher-functioning group of children, emphasizing their intellectual strengths, and he, he actually would say things like, you know, he would talk about scientists and how they had many of these traits <laughs> as well as social awkwardness um, uh, uh, that reminded him of these children. Uh, he called the kids explicitly little professors. <laughs>
3: um,
2: and uh, so he put this paper out. Um, the paper was not read in the English world. Um, we, we, don't, we really don't think Connor uh, heard about it at the time. Why do you think that might have not been the case? What's going on in the world right now? <laughs> We're at war, yes. Because so Connor's so Vienna, his university, in fact, is being controlled by the Nazis at this point. And actually, there's a whole line of of argument that Connor described this group of high functioning kids, emphasized their gifts to protect them from the Nazis who are euthanizing children with profound disability. Be that as it may, it does not appear that Connor was an advocate for severely disabled children with autism, because it's been well documented now that he approved of some children on his service with profound intellectual disability to be sent to the euthanizing hospital.
5: hospital.
2: Yes. Yes, so, so Asperger. Um, so H- Asperger's paper was basically for g- not paid attention to in the English world, um, and Connor would be the. Uh, it would be rediscovered later on. And I'll come back to that. Let's so raise the question: Where was autism before nineteen forty-three? You know, if it just suddenly appears like this, it's pretty clear that there were cases uh, that uh, what we would call autism in the early twentieth century. They would often have the diagnosis of childhood schizophrenia a word we don't use very much anymore at all, many of the kids may well have been institutionalized, and you would just be shocked to know how sloppy the, the diagnostic process for institutionalized children was in the early 20th century. So that's those are plausible hypotheses. Much less certainty over what happened before 1900 with these kids, and especially in this world where what are the numbers... Uh, Certainly one in 115 kids are being diagnosed with autism. You see higher numbers than that that I question a bit. That's a lot of kids. Where were they all? And there's a lot of speculation. Um, There were descriptions of children with uh, significant intellectual disability who could do brilliant things nonetheless. They're called idiot savants. Um, There's a whole literature um, of describing eccentric geniuses an argument that may have had Asperger's. Uh, Henry Cavendish, the chemist, is a really good candidate for that. Um, Isaac Newton may well have been. Um, many others are much more dubious. I don't buy Thomas Jefferson, for example. Um, and then for you guys, I'm going to introduce another hypothesis. has been the tradition of the Holy Fool. Um, very. Are, how many of you have, are familiar with this? Um, this tradition that I know just a little bit about, you know, a, a kind of wandering monk first appeared in Syria in the 4th century, um, who's like Saint Simeon the Fool, um, who lived to defy convention Saint Simeon would run would, would carry around a dead dog uh, he would he would he, he was famous for running naked into the woman's bathhouse <coughs> to make some kind of theological point that I don't understand there, there's this kind of the holy fool could would subvert and turn around society's conventions to, uh, and the holy fool had a great history in Russian in orthodoxy in particular uh, Saint basil is pictured here who is this Holy Fool, was so crazy, he was the only person who could talk back to the is to Ivan the Terrible, and not be killed. Um, and that cathedral in Moscow with all the domes, mm-hmm. that, that mad cathedral, that's dedicated to him. So, the interesting tradition of the Holy Fool, and we might sort of come back to that, as sort of as we really don't know, but that is hypothesized that might have been a niche for some of these people. Um, and I was just struck by uh, you know, the story about uh, St. Simeon in the bathhouse. So I had talking talking this week to a family whose kid, just a teenager, he just comes out of the shower and just walks out of the family room, doesn't think that anything's wrong with that. And another kid earlier in the week who's doing the same thing in the group home. You know, just, it just, It's not that he's trying to be socially subversive. He just doesn't get it. <laughs> so I just made me think of St. Basil, <clears throat> um, who ended up being quite honored. Um, Okay, so that's the discovery. And now I want to briefly describe not, we're not going to go into detail through the whole history of autism, but these three windows or paradigms by which people have tried to make sense of this condition that certainly is different. Um, the first response was to see autism as an emotional disturbance. The first group of, of professionals to take interest in, in, to interest in autism were psychiatrists. Um, and not just psychiatrists, but psychoanalysts in particular who thought that autism was the result of a child, of an infant, shall I say, withdrawing into their own world at the hands of a distant and uncaring mother. Um, autism framed as, as basically infant's response to maternal rejection. Um, Dr. Connor, who I've mentioned, uh, at first, well, Dr. Conner noted that many of the parents of his patients seemed to be very intellectual often in kind of a coldly abstract kind of way. A lot of them were represented in American men and women of science. He thought the connection at first was genetic, but over time he began to buy into the suggestion from his colleagues that, no, it was really that the coldness of these highly educated parents was was what the infants were reacting to. And this idea took off. You can imagine the cultural factors playing into this, uh, the... uh, you know, there's, a, there's a bit of misogyny involved in this, blaming the mother for the, for the infant. Um, but there's actually, we'd have to say, a lot of science behind that. Studies of infant deprivation are being quoted as well. And it becomes very big throughout the 1950s. Um, it even lasts into the 1960s and it gets a big push by a figure who's notorious in autism circles, but was highly admired in his day. Brunhold Badelheim Betel, was one of these doctors who likes to write for the public. He was an Atul Gawande of his day, but in a much more sinister sort. <laughs> I remember coming from a, psych, a psychoanalytic, Atul <laughs> using that. Um, and what made him such a... But part of what gave Bettelheim so much authority as a psychiatrist was he was a Holocaust survivor. And he drew on that experience to argue... He remembered the experience of people in the camps and how in this setting of complete uh, lack of power they would respond by withdrawing again into themselves. He thought that was a model for autism as well. And and sort of the power of that narrative, again, got a whole other group of people into this parent-blaming narrative. So, Betelheim ran this hospital. He wrote a book, Empty Fortress, and that, that's the image of the child. <coughs> not, you know, a wall keeping, the, keeping these horrible parents, parents out, a, a wall of protection. Um, so, Betelheim, uh the striking thing about this is, you know, this is remembered in the autistic community, uh, in, the, in the autism community, as, as I say, just one of the classic stories of medical expertise gone bad, you know, of <laughs> the tyranny of medical expertise, a bad idea that, that was just devastating for parents. You add on the devastation of dealing with this child who who can't return your love, and now you're blamed for it. You're put into a psychoanalysis to understand why this happened. He was, again, seen as a hero in the community. Um, Betelheim wrote a time that child abuse was being discovered right (laughs) on the heels of Henry Kemp's paper, and he was seen as sort of in that vein of unmasking uh, another kind of abuse. Um, There was a Catholic writer who who wrote an article um, called, uh, someone, Ryan, uh the, the, the holy work of Bruno Betelheim. Okay. And part of what these kind of writers would latch onto is how Betelheim treated the children. He had this special school where the children would be invited and allowed to since he hypothesized they were they had not been allowed to express themselves, they were allowed in an environment of total expression, to let out their anger with this giant statue of a woman, the mother that the child was supposed to jump on and beat and bite. But the children would also do this to the caretakers. They would be allowed to spit and defecate on them and slap them. Betelheim believed that this is what was necessary. So people would look at Betelheim. We're all going, oh, my gosh, the mothers. People were looking at the workers and how they're doing all the, taking all this abuse for the children. Uh, all of you are squinting. And see, Part of what we do as historians, we remind you that sometimes ideas that we find abhorrent, uh, all the bright people of the time buy into this. I if many of you have heard of Robert Cole, very famous uh, writer about children. He was a big fan of Betelheim. Um, so what are the legacies of this? This idea has pretty much um, been shot down, uh, uh, except as a very bad memory. It lives on a little bit in that it is certainly, there's a germic tr- truth to it in the sense that it is true if you take an infant, put them in an institutionalized setting, they develop something that I think is that has been actually called quasi-autism. So that's maybe some truth behind it, and that, that that idea is still out there. But what I want to emphasize is how for the... Well, let me put it this way. How many of you have heard this story? Can you just raise your hands? No credit if you. I'm just curious. Um, many parents in Autistic community do know this story. And, you know, history is always remembered much longer by the victims than the perpetrators. Um, and that is important for this story, because parents have... Parents remember this. It's led to a legacy of, well, how do you think you might feel toward professionals today? You're going to be suspicious. So, the next part of the story is autism as illness. Um, there's a the rise of this second paradigm where autism, instead of being seen as an emotional problem caused by the parents, you know, notice I didn't say anything about a physical or medical issue. It was all emotional. Now it's going to be constructed as a medical issue. And a complicated story here, but uh, it's interesting. It's led by a um, this guy, Bernie Remlin, um, who was a psychologist who had a kid with autism. He, he figured it out over, it took him no years to figure it out it's such an unusual diagnosis. And Remlin, as a psychologist, um, just didn't buy into this parent blaming stuff. And he wrote this whole book. He was a little bit obsessive himself, wrote a giant <laughs> book, wouldn't, looked up everything in the library he could find about autism. Diagnosed his own son as having autism. This this one was much later than the book was written. Is that his son? That is. That that son, you know, grown up. um, And he wrote this book as a repudiation of the psychogenic theory. When this came out, he was seen, like I say, as kind of a maverick, you know, somebody who's just going against the the established dogma. But parents all around the country heard about this book, parents of, of children with autism, began to diagnose their own children with autism as well and started to write into Remlin. Um, and they were not only looking for bonding, they were looking for some way to help their kid. And Remlin had not said a word about that in this book. It was all about what autism is. And and um, Remlin then he needed some way to treat it. He found an answer. Remlin is in San Diego and right up the street at LA there was a researcher looking for ways to treat autism. Um, and that was this figure, Ivar Lovas. Ivar Lovas was a behavioralist. What does that mean? Anybody know? He's a psychologist. not like, See, psychiatry is all enmeshed in this story, but there's lots of kinds of psychiatry. a lot on like,
4: stimulus and response.
2: Exactly. So. Ring, ring a bell, make the dog drool kind of things. <laughs> That's Lovas' background. Lovas once boasted that If he had gotten Adolf Hitler at an early enough age, he could have made him a nice person. (laughs) Famous Lobos quote. Uh, So Lobos was actually working with children. uh, 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 He he believed that you could take these kids, many of whom, I should emphasize, really had very severe behavioral problems. Um, What I'm about to tell you is not going to make sense to you if you, again, don't have an appreciation of how challenging these children's behaviors can be. Children with autism, um, especially... Left to themselves without any help, can end up. But sometimes, even if you you get, you get help, can get into behaviors such as fecal smearing, spreading their feces all over the house. They, I, I've talked to kids families this week whose kids wake up at two o'clock in the morning, stay up for two or three hours, and their parents are like you know, just totally exhausted. They can refuse so many foods; they actually fail to grow. They often bite themselves, never stimulated, bite other people, can have huge issues at school. So we need to picture these challenging issues that um, maybe early this century would leave them in an institution. But by this point, these kids are often at home. Parents are struggling for a way to deal with this. And Lovas thought behaviorless solutions could be the answer. Those solutions were depicted in a Life magazine article in 1965 called Screams, Slaps, and Love, which has a very important place in the story of autism. And it describes Loas' work, uh, focusing on three children. Um, and it does describe how these children, when he's basically, he would try to get the child to look at them. If they looked and smiled, they would get a, like an M&M, you know, get something like candy. If they didn't, or if they went into a tantrum, they would be shocked. Oh,
3: okay.
2: That's why screams, slaps, and love. The story ends, it was really considered a happy story for Life magazine. It ends showing this child smiling at the Examiner. Again, waves of shock from all of us. Parents from all over the country wrote in to Rimland and and said, you've got a way to help us. You've got a way to help us. And Rimland brings in this kind of therapy, behavioralist therapy as, as hope. Families coalesce around this, and out of this comes the families, parents organize a network that becomes the Autism Society of America, which is still still in existence. A parent network, its first meeting was in 1965, shortly after the Scream, Slaps, and Love uh, 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 story. And the parents all wore little refrigerator pins on their clothes as a way of rebelling against the refrigerator mother hypothesis. <laughs> um, so these parents come together and they find professional advocates, Eric Schopler at UNC, uh, became a very important one, um and out of this comes a new, a new paradigm that sees autism not as an emotional disorder but as a disability, kind of analogous to cerebral palsy. Uh, at first it's thought to be a brain injury, but over time the focus is on genetics. But it's biological, that's the thing to emphasize. And like any disability, it's thought to be amenable but not curable to therapy. And the therapies proposed would be speech, and occupational therapy, but also behavioral therapy. And Lovas' techniques evolved into the most common therapy for autism, which is called ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis, if some of you ever heard that term. ABA today uh, has evolved a lot from what we saw before. It's not, it, it has dropped the shocking, so that's gone. But it still is a, a behavioralist approach that focuses on rewards. They try to focus more on natural rewards, not, not this mechanistic kind of stuff that was done earlier on. Um, but ABA has been studied, and it really—it really does have a uh, can have, make a big difference. Uh, in, basically, it, 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 for the children who are so unable to relate socially, they don't respond to standard motivators. ABA can really make a difference with them. So that was what was embraced by the by by these parents. But nothing's ever that simple. The parents themselves soon began to divide, as did the professionals, and a more radical wing emerged. The radical wing agreed that autism is biological, but biological not in the sense of cerebral palsy, a disability you have to live with, but biological in the sense of PKU. PKU is one of those disorders you're screened for in the newborn screen. Um, we screen for it because it's I mean, it's it's a disorder that if you can pick it up in a in an infant and give <laughs> them a special diet, you can prevent it. You can cure it essentially. Many parents thought hoped that autism would turn out to be like that, or maybe a set of conditions like that. And this this wave led to its own set of organizations with names like Defeat Autism Now, Cure Autism Now. Autism is a set of biomedical conditions with environmental triggers, and over time, they came to focus on vaccines as one of the big triggers. And uh, autism seems potentially curable through biomedical approaches, diets. um, You can think of the PKU analogy of vitamins. Heavy metal chelation is promoted over time. Uh, these two wings fight with each other. Most medical professionals, the vast majority, are in here, but there's a group down here as well. And uh, this is the story that you know, as, as, um, that we become very familiar with as pediatricians, as especially as this energy gets channeled into the vaccine wars in the late 1990s, early 2000s. The official word is that from lots of studies since then is that vaccines really have not do not have anything to do uh, with autism. We can talk more about that, but I'd kind of rather not because... It's not really very theological, Um, but I'm sort of trying. What I want you to get out of this part of the talk is that parents emerge as as a powerful, although not unified, community. Both of these groups of parents still share. They have differences, okay? Is autism curable, or is it just treatable? But they both believe that it's at least treatable. You should do something about it. It's it's an illness. That's what they, they agree on. That it's an illness. Where if if they say it's a disability, they wouldn't say disability in the sense of different ability. They say disability. Okay, it's a problem, and they're focusing on um, making these children function like the rest of us. Well, now we come into the third mm-hmm. paradigm: autism as identity. And this is so. I've been talking. You know, we talked early on about professionals drive the dynamic. Then we move to parents and now we're going to turn to people with autism, actually themselves beginning to speak out. Um, That would not have happened for children like the ones we saw described early in the 1940s because those were generally nonverbal. Of Kanner's 11 patients, uh, most ended up in institutions. All but one ended up just in terrible shape developmentally. The one incidentally who did well was Donald T., who was tracked down... Uh, and you can find an article in The Atlantic, he works in a golf club in Mississippi. And what saved him was that he was kept on a farm. <laughs> um, by, his parents put him on a farm with these loving parents, and on the farm he could kind of do all the strange things and, and do okay. Had he put in an institution, he, he would never have spoken. Uh, I'm, but Anyway, most people with autism in this early in the early, in the 1950s, 60s, are, are not able to talk. We don't know their, we can't get their voices. But autism expands. Um, in 19, around 1980, this woman, Lorna Wing, um, is a researcher in the United Kingdom, who did a community-wide study in London of autism. She basically did systematic exams over this whole community in the south, um, on the, the, south, the south side of the Thames River and found that, yes, she did find numbers for the kids with classical autism, but she found a whole lot of other kids who were kind of in between. She wasn't quite sure how to classify them. And it's really Lorna Wing who develops this concept that autism is a spectrum. <clears throat> and she, she actually would use that word over time. Um, this took, um, she coined the spectrum idea, and then to describe people on the, what she believed was the highest end of the autism spectrum, she rediscovered Hans Asperger's paper, which had largely been ignored, but now she finds it again, and uses that word to describe people who really have intact language, maybe complex language, but who again can't do conversation. They just converse themselves on and on, not letting anybody else talk. I feel a little weird saying that. <coughs> um,
3: <laughs> little professor. <laughs>
2: So, uh, and there was opposition to this uh, at the time. Many thought, no, you really shouldn't you know, call these the same. Uh, and there's, there's still some who, who don't think they should. But, by, but she did win this, this battle. And Asperger's was seen as part of autism, and autism extended into a spectrum. Many more people by the 1990s are being called autistic, and many more high-functioning people. As this happens, there's lots of interest in the special abilities with autism. And I told you, even with Connor. You know, with that first kid I described, remember he, he could do the Presbyterian Catechism? Um, that's not true of everyone with autism. Although I'm struck, when you ask carefully, you find an awful lot kids do have some kind of special abilities, especially with iPads. Most are much better with iPads. Because uh, I ask every patient I see ask parents about the child's intelligence, and, uh, and they often do terribly unintelligence tests. So what I ask about is, what happens with an iPad? And they can all outdo me. A huge number can. So special abilities gets more and more attention, and then you start to get high functioning people who are described. Temple Grandin. How many of you are? A lot of you have heard of her. One of the most famous people with autism today. Um, Temple was actually not classic Aspergers in the sense that she she really was classic autism. Had classic autism um, when she was young. No, so. Yeah, I'm struggling to say she was autism, she had autism. Everyone struggles over this language. <laughs> um, but um, she, she, had, she was nonverbal when she was young. And um, somehow she escaped the psychoanalytic approach, and she got a kind of behavioral approach. And she made great progress. And she, she now has become articulate, and she found that she had this special gift for reading animals and has this really interesting niche in the agricultural industry. Uh, using those abilities. Um, a movie HBO movie was made about her. And, we, and uh, this is her... Oh, I had some books to pass around. Here's The Empty Fortress for your sickos among you to look at. For those happier of you to look at, this is Temple Granit's book. Um, and some anti-vaccine books to pass around to just give you a flavor for that. This is called Evidence of Harm... And a mother gave this to me about is, about the Mercury Apostles. I remember I covered it with paper and read it. while well, my car was being used. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> <laughs> like pornography. <laughs> but you know, it's a story we need to understand all sides. <laughs> um, that's really true. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so Temple Grandin. Although she was first brought to attention by Oliver Sacks in a famous <laughs> essay called, in his book, Anthropologist on Mars. Um, uh, she did speak for herself, and that book there is part of her effort to relate her own spirit, experience as a person with autism. And she especially plays up the theme of thinking in pictures, which is a big part of, of her contribution to autism. So this thing, more and more people, especially as more high-functioning people are now out there, uh, they are speaking up for themselves and they have really, uh, they are trying to develop a culture for autism analogous to what has happened in the deaf community. Uh, and they are going quite far with it. Um, celebrating neurodiversity uh, is the coin word there if you hear that. Um, and uh, they like to talk, you know, they like to focus on the positive aspects of autism um, and, and special gifts that come with it all sounds very nice and well and good. you think all these people could get along together. No. (laughs) These two groups, the neurodiversity group and the autism as illness group, hate each other. Why? Well, think about this. The illness model is still very much alive and well. Um, There are these powerful parent-led groups that continue to search for treatments, cures for autism, and promote lots of medical research, Autism Speaks is doing enormous genetic studies. Um, They're they very active, looking for those treatments, for cures. That language is still used very much in this community. They like to use the word, they like to speak of persons with autism to make distinct the, the person versus the disorder. Uh, um, and you know these folks who are so organized, very often they are dealing with very challenging issues, like I started to describe you know, before, very hard things at, at home. And this idea of just calling autism just another kind of identity, Um, you know, when your child is up all night. And uh, I think Dr. Lawson has seen some of my patients, you know, in in, in families' lives. um, They can be extremely chaotic. Have you all ever heard of that poem, that short story called Welcome to Holland, that was written by a mother of a child with Down syndrome? Have you heard of that before? It's a mother's account of of getting, uh, how she uh, accommodated and accepted her child's diagnosis of Down syndrome. By making the comparison, of, I thought I was flying, I think, to Rome, but you imagine that, but instead your flight goes to Holland instead, and you, it's a shock at first, but gradually get used to Holland. You realize there are things about Holland that, you, that are there to, that you really love. Although part of you always wishes you had gone to Rome, and wonders what that would have been like. Well, a parent of a child with autism, um, who I think had dealt with some of that fecal smearing stuff I talked to you about, which, you know, it, it's for real. I, I've, I've heard of families dealing with this. The child wakes up in the middle of the night and you walk in the house and there's stuff all over the, the wall, maybe even bleeding in the bathroom as, as a child has tried to disimpact themselves. A parent wrote as essay called Welcome to Beirut. So some of these parents are coming at this from, this from this kind of direction. They are looking for a cure. There's nothing identity about this. But the identity model, the neurodiversity people, and they're very active on the web, they say, they, 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 say we, they do want to talk about autistic persons. They don't think you can separate the disorder from the person, um, and that they are just innerly tied together. Um, and they disavow attempts at cure as fundamentally wrong-headed. They don't think it should be cured. Um, they, want to, they, they actually have a slogan, don't cure autism now. They oppose genetic research. Um, uh, as uh, fear that will lead to selective abortion. Mm. Interesting. So, <clears throat> is autism identity, you know, or is it uh, a disorder? That is this big place and this big struggle going on in 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 disability writing, uh, uh, in, uh, on the internet. And this is really where I want to wrap up, you know, with the, with the talking part of this and and get y'all's thoughts. You know, is how do you react to this? You know, to, it, to these two, we're not going to talk about the psychogenic model much. I presume most of you don't sympathize with that. But these other two models, autism and illness or autism and identity, I don't know that's so simple to sort out. And how do we respond to that and, or should we go different directions to think of framing these real challenges? I
4: just have a question. Yeah. Um, I think this, this um, between parents, this is not unique to autism. Right. Is that correct? I think the deaf- Mm -hmm. That's correct.
2: Um, However, a really excellent book, I would commend Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree. Very thoughtful overview of a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, parents with all kinds of children coming from different directions. In his opinion, he he, he, he does believe that that, yes, that's true, but no other community is as intensely divided as this one. Um, and that his chapter on that is full of evidence. The vitriol of the exchanges. So it, it's intense right now. The identity idea has been embraced more in the deaf community, uh, I think, than it still has here. Right. Um, I'm so done with talking.
6: Yeah. One ever thought about um, framing this as a way of being instead of identity or a problem like this is this person's way of being, and then instead of trying to, and then like how does it interact fear interact with my way of being and how can we work together so that our ways of being are both leading to the life we want. mm -hmm. And but then my main question is you mentioned first off made a comment about some people or the idea that autism or people with autism can't love or have difficulty loving or connecting. Yet love and connection are so essential in the Christian paradigm. So do you have
2: any thoughts about that? I think I might like to ask the group about that because I think you just hit the nail on the head. <laughs> right. Um, and though I'm not a theologian. I did uh, pull out an article by Dr. Swinton, um, uh, you know, a theologian, uh, practical theologian, who has written on this, and that's exactly what he, he hones in on. Um, so I'm old enough to remember the the big debates over whether children with profound intellectual disability, we're going back to the 1970s and 80s, do children with profound intellectual disability, should they be called persons? I can kind of remember that debate. And I remember that um, there were, the theological community argued that the point that gives these kids meaning, even if their level of intellectual function is very low, they can relate, they can love. <laughs> and it does seem to me that that ability to relate is valued very highly in the Christian tradition. So what do we do with this group of persons who, I mean, if I can frame, you, question, question, frame your question, what do we do with this group of people where the problem is defined as inability to relate? I'm not telling you the answer. <laughs>
7: I had an experience this summer that I'll share with you. Um, I directed what's called a arts camp, um, a performing arts camp for a church, and we had elementary children through middle school who would come in, and we taught them a musical over five days. And one of the children who was brought to the camp was listed as autistic, and she was nonverbal, and she was five years old, and was not potty trained, and so the first reaction of the church was to be afraid. We don't know how to handle this. We don't know what to do. Um, But we decided we would take her and we would work with her the best we could. And one thing we found was that those of us who worked really closely with her and we repeated our daily stuff with her every single day and we kept her as active as we could with the main group, she responded a lot better to us because we became familiar and we became the ones who were guiding her. and then, so we started out at the first of the week with tantrums the first two days, and we got through those. But by the last day when we did the big performance for the parents, mm. she was able to stay on stage with all of the rest of the kids. And we helped her do the hand motions, but she wasn't able to actually sing the music. And that was a neat breakthrough because the church, I watched the church go from afraid and not sure what to do with her to we actually did this. <coughs> And they actually made connections, and that was cool to watch. Mm-hmm. So I think helping people connect with these children is a big thing.
2: So you tell oh you yeah, up front, it was not at all obvious that it would be possible to connect. No. And yet you found a way to, mm-hmm. to do that. Um, that's a good, very practical kind of comment. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, other other thoughts or reflections.
5: I have a question. Okay. Sure. So, for you said that the um, identity movement is mostly led by people with autism who want to, you know, self-identify and say, you yeah, know, this is part of who I am. Um, whereas the parents are leading the Let's Find a <coughs> Cure movement. Okay. Um, and I was just wondering, is that usually? I know now that. High functioning. Yeah, so that's, that label is actually falling away, and people are advocating for like it's mm-hmm. all autism. But is it kind of along the lines of like the identity movement is mostly for people with Asperger's who can have some sort of verbal relationships, whereas the cure is more for people who are nonverbal?
2: So the um, the people who make DSM have dropped Asperger's. Uh, partly because it, there's a lot of tends yeah. a lot of sub, 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 subjectivity about when you use the word high-function autism and Asperger's, mm-hmm. which tend to go into how well they fit that little professor stereotype. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think people in neurodiversity in that community, you think they reject the term Asperger's? I don't know. They don't. don't know no, they it. love it. Yeah. They, they, they call themselves Aspies.
3: Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it so can come in line with that with the identity being good, they actually find that a helpful way to think about themselves. Mm-hmm.
6: Jesse? I struggle with all these questions a lot. I have a cousin who is severely autistic. He's one year younger than me. And I struggle with this from a theological perspective and a community perspective. Mm-hmm. Because to ask the question, like, how do you approach an autistic child in a loving way has just, like, infiltrated my life. I struggle, because you gave a really good example where it, it turned out really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my aunt's approach was to do that, to say we shouldn't define autism as somebody completely unable to relate with people because that puts them in a box where why even try? So I'm going to try, I'm not going to define it as the inability to relate on an extreme level, just on, a, on an amenable level kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And over time, the community of their family fell apart because of her, mm-hmm. like, her insistence upon keeping him as a part of the community level. And the, unfortunately, my um, uncle ended up committing suicide and like that that whole community was broken because of a, a desire to keep it together. Mm-hmm. Um, both, they would articulate that in a faith-wise sense, um, and then also in just like a, like a familial sense. Um, but just listening to their discourse over over time has really made me question like what, from a theological perspective, like what is love and for whom is love when you're talking about community around autism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because it affects a lot more than just mm-hmm. like I see the way that it affects um, There is a family of three boys and I see the way And that's different than the way that it affects the mom who has this sense of, like, autism isn't a minimal thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, obviously, the way it affected her Mm -hmm. husband. But to keep Christian communities asking the question of, like, what does it mean to love or what does it mean to be Mm Christ-like around autism Mm -hmm. is very hard.
2: there's almost <clears throat> so you' you're kind of changed the direction from our identity rights language you know that mm-hmm. gets used in outside culture to talking about what love is,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> which I think is a productive way to think about this um, in both directions yeah uh, your your comment both your comments focus on how do we love these people mm-hmm. right and then there's also how do we think about their love. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it really that they can't love, or is that they love in a really different way? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's interesting to think about. Um, maybe there first, and then okay. you go ahead.
4: This builds a little bit off, off that in terms of relating in a different way. So I'm, I'm struck by, and I guess I'd love to hear you speak more on the way that those on the spectrum relate to their physical world more than to, human, like, to fellow beings. In mm-hmm. my mind,
2: interesting um because i think uh, so many people with autism you know are fascinated by the parts of things you know studying one thing and looking at it in minute detail um not necessarily the same the, so so focusing you know contemplating a small thing not so much known for contemplating great big things, the small things, but for doing it for extraordinary amounts of time. I, that's probably how I would foc- you think of the focusing on things. Um, one other thing that might engage still what you're thinking about is, remember, just as important as that focusing on things is the focusing on routines. Um, so kind of think about monasticism you guys shoot me down if I get out of my area here too much but I know a little bit about this you know, that, you know there are these rhythms of the day and then how hard it is for us to do this <laughs> you know, how we all we neurotypical people that's the word for us <laughs> um, and how for these folks these rituals are actually really just part of life and give them substance um, some people with, uh, with um, there's a memoir by a woman, woman whose husband has Asperger's she realized that although her husband could not express his love directly, he seems to express, she realized he expressed it through doing routines together because he wants to do these same rituals together every
3: evening. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that
2: help at all? You're bringing up raising, I think, a profound question that I may have really undershot. <laughs> no, no, no,
4: I, um, it helps. Uh, I don't want to go off the rails in my understanding of theory of either, um, so I defer to Dr. Kimborn and Brett. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just intrigued by the capacity to attend to the created world in a clearly different way that also hides what you've just spoken to in sort of rhythms of the day, possibly hides a way of living well and flourishing that we don't experience as neurotypical.
6: An example with my cousin is um, it wouldn't... uh, less about routine, but more about uh, physical touch, so if anybody ever wanted Uh to...
2: I'm sorry, that was an important one. Yeah, Yeah,
6: and if anybody Mm -hmm. ever wanted to get close to him, my aunt would give them a special brush and if you brushed his arm in a special Mm -hmm. way, like, he would then know that would be his signal that, like, you are okay. I I can be this person's friend. Mm -hmm. And so, like, just Mm -hmm. the idea of, like, how does touch play into their Mm -hmm. understanding of love and connection.
2: Thanks, So I was thinking theologically and not thinking of that part, but that's a huge part of how sure. many people with autism relate sensory-wise, okay. which is sometimes withdrawing from sensory stimuli, but often craving them. Mm-hmm. I had a child yesterday I was seeing who uh, my entire exam, you can imagine my exams can be, our doctor work, exam rooms are, not, are basically set up as nightmares for these kids. Sure. Um, but sometimes you can imagine kids are like, Running around, slamming doors the whole time. This child was spending the whole visit trying to come up to me, and lick me, and kiss me, do both for the whole visit. It's kind of cute.
3: We'll,
2: we'll, we'll see if I have a cold next week. Back,
8: yeah, back to your, your question. You know, I like the way Swinton looks at disability as, and the church as, as um, when we get to the point as, as the church body of the church where. We look at people uh, with disabilities not just because, I can't remember how he says it, because they're present, mm-hmm. but are they a part of us yeah, to on. where we miss them when they're not there. Right. And we have that in, um, I'm happy to say, in my church in, in Florida, we've got one <coughs> at a, the early service, we've got grandparents who bring the autistic grandson. Um, and he's probably moderate- is severe Mm -hmm. Um, and we all know it's a very forgiving service There's about 85 people we all know that for him music is Mm -hmm. important and so we sing more hymns when he's there And (coughs) and it's just it's amazing to me to watch and be a part of people are very forgiving when he cries out or when he claps and it's not the right time you know, we just the service is just kind of adjust around him,
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
8: and and it's joyful to see his joy in the music. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's kind of a you know that's his connection is that music, and it pulls us in as the body of Christ to to him, mm-hmm. versus ex- an expectation of him, you know, behaving behaving the way he should be behaving in church or else don't go to big church.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Temple Grandin has writes some about spirituality, and and some of it, you, it it's through a very logical mind, and mm-hmm. sort of basically saying she can't, she she can't make sense of a lot of religion, but uh, yeah. she does try to talk about spirituality. and she talks about music. Yes. What yeah. I, uh, yeah. She very much talks about that. I suspect it's not like st- you know end of uh, stairway to heaven, but kind <laughs> <very more laughs> of more rhythmic music. Yes. She can be immersed in. No. Yeah. Um,
3: uh, yeah, one thought that came to mind, and it's sort of a follow up from what Anna just uh-huh. said, is giving uh, the the presence and being of the autistic person could, it theologically at least, be for the benefit of others mm-hmm. and in molding their character. Mm-hmm. You see, I mean, we're focusing on the, the autistic yeah. person, uh-huh. him or herself, right? Um, but the very presence and being could be. If, if for no other reason than it causes reaction mm-hmm. in a particular way,
2: that might be applied to healthcare providers too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> think, um, can we, we, can we learn?
3: So their, their presence <laughs> and their being mm-hmm. could serve a purpose of, of enhancing the social environment, even though they are not taking an active part in it. Does,
6: does, having that view necessitate that we view autism? perspective that you have said? Because that
2: would be my initial conclusion, but I'm, I'm wondering if I may a complicated conclusion for me. Meaning, yeah. Um, I just... One thing we feel, and I don't think you're doing this, but maybe in some circles, one thing one would have to be careful of is underestimating the degree of accommodation that does have to change to make things work. It's not... Mm-hmm. Necessary, um, and I, I didn't. I'm not mean to imply you who said this at all, but I could imagine many people could mm-hmm. could sort of trivialize that. It might be quite a bit of accommodation, because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes people with autism like to squeal and scream at mm-hmm. uh, you know quiet moments. So I go to this Presbyterian church that's pretty you know regular and formed <laughs> <laughs> instruction. <laughs> yeah, you know, so screams in the middle of sermon that would create, you know so things like that. It, so it pushes us to think about how we do that and mm-hmm. what formats we set up. Yes.
5: children with autism get along in groups together? Do they irritate each other or you know, get each other more riled up or is there something productive or helpful about having communities of autistic children that can come together?
2: I would say that the main thing that brings people with all... That it, it may be less whether you have autism or not that to brings you together than do you have a shared interest. Mm-hmm. That brings you together um, one other argument of a place that maybe is where people with high functioning autism hung out before there were ASPE organizations were or science fiction <laughs> clubs which, um, but, but seriously as you think of somebody with autism there is along the spectrum The se- people on the severe end of the spectrum they, that would not generally if you put several of those folks together um, they'll probably just be by themselves um, the very first step beyond being in your own aloof world would be to respond to somebody else. So, when you ask a, a, a family how does your child with autism engage, you, you might, on the extreme end, you might see a child engages with nobody. Then you might see a child who engages with parents because they're initiating, but not to peers. And then the next level would be engaging with, peer, with peers or wanting to engage but not knowing how, and finally learning the rules of how to engage with peers. So,
5: yeah, I was thinking particularly about churches that offer um, services for people with special needs so that families who do have somebody who says cries out and in mm-hmm. a normal service who feel uncomfortable bringing that person. Um, I've heard of some churches that offer special needs services. Um, mm-hmm. And if that would be helpful for children
2: I could picture that, but I, it would definitely have to be a service that is. Special needs and neurotypical, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and or neuro yeah. whatever, whatever, it would know, be a combination to, right. to make it work.
1: Yeah. Right. So, a couple of those One, just to channel one of our doctorate of ministry students, Dixon Kenzer, who's writing writing about this, and he's a parent of a child with autism. Mm-hmm. Have, that um, one of the things that all of this challenges is the modern, especially American Protestant way of thinking about. Um, Christianity is all about right relationship with God it's all about having a personal relationship with Jesus yeah. all about feeling a relationship with God or with Jesus or with the Holy Spirit in a certain way so what to do with those that don't engage that that, that don't or can't subjectively experience relationship in the way that neurotypical people tend to assume as normative and what does that mean for discipleship so that's just a kind of a question and and, um, and a real for me hearing disc talk about it is really a kind of a a mark against primarily describing Christian discipleship in terms of relationship, especially when it's subjectively felt relationship. Yes. yes. You can think of other ways to define relationship that might be more biblical besides like feeling friendship. So that's thing. Yeah, there, um thing. The other thing that just occurs to me, and i am interested to hear your thoughts about this, Jeff, is that, or, or others, is that both the illness model and the identity model seem to me, maybe among other things, to be well accepted cultural strategies for avoiding shame mm. such that and they work in different ways they're not the mm. same but they each rely on the 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 idea of a self which uh is authentic which can which should be accepted within the social culture and uh which needs not defend itself and therefore needs not be the subject of shame in the case of the illness model it's like if the person. Apart from the illness, that's that sort of person who shouldn't be shamed. So, like anything that's shaming is is belongs to the illness. In the identity model, it's the person as a whole, with whatever neurodiverse you know characteristics. So, but but um one of the reasons why maybe people why these two groups hate each other and why also there's so much um uh power in these different models is because as humans we tend to be incredibly um we tend to work incredibly hard to avoid shame in our lives and in our families and in our children and so anything that help, that provides a, a way of escape from that is going to have psychological power on us as humans and and i just wonder if
2: that's a really really interesting comment yeah. i think you're onto right, something there and i'm especially thinking about it i was trying i was wrestling whether to put the first part of this talk in here or not that first phase of, which was about shaming parents you know this, this entity really did emerge into these stories we talked about with a huge amount of shame to begin with. I think it's really interesting to think about these are strategies to deal with the leftover pieces of that, and I think there is still leftover. I, I'm still struck that um, parents, uh, mothers—I should—I I think it is mainly mothers—will, if you probe, there is this feeling that it's something about me, um, including genetics, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something about me. I still hear that.
1: Well, and it's, didn't it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with, it, it, the history plays into part of a larger script of, like, what does it mean yeah. to be a, a normal person in our culture that needs not be ashamed of our behavior? Mm-hmm. And that, that ties into certain images of, like, the perfect family and the mm-hmm. perfect children, or the per- yeah. you know, and, and all of this is a response to what happens when that doesn't happen. Like, mm-hmm.
3: yeah.
6: I, I think the shame can get uh, played out in a different way. Um, I think that in like both identity and illness theory, I completely agree that there are like these ways of dealing with shame, but then like once you you articulate that autism is this way, then there becomes a checklist. Like, okay, if it is this way, mm-hmm. then to cure the illness, this is the checklist. And I've seen people try to go through that checklist so much that if they don't do it perfectly, there's a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. some people who like are all about the certain types of diets or the certain types, like if they don't have enough money, mm-hmm. there's shame that they aren't contributing to... The healing of their autistic child in the same way that, they, that somebody could with more resources, and so like that shame plays out in a, on a different light. I don't
0: know. Yeah. yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm just struck um, thinking about the early comments you had about well, where could these folks have been before now? Um, mm-hmm. And these the conversation around shame. I mean, I, I just think that there's a there's got to be a way in which our our kind of medicalized and discipline society, uh, actualizes certain possibilities within human nature that express themselves and become coded in this way. I mean, I just don't think identity or illness are categories that we would be able to have without a certain medicalization of our imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the shame mechanism is, a, the, well, then this, given the culture that we have and the expectations of discipline around it, then these become coping categories even within this disciplined medicalized society two alternate ways. But it just um I'm talking about Julian Norwich this morning who like lived in a house by herself, like attached to a church. Um you know, like and and she talks about the world as a hazelnut. Um so there's this intense focus on a particular thing or the point of Christ's passion. It, um I just uh, I think there's a kind of breadth of expression, or Simeon the Stylite to, like, live, you know, on the thing. But but even in that breadth of expression that might have been present earlier, there was also uh, modes of patterning their lives religiously. So re- Simeon the Stylite couldn't be too hard on himself during Easter time. That's what his bishop said. Um, because it's Easter. Like, you can't, like, you know, you, you should at least eat every other day or something. Um, like... Um, <laughs> So, so anyways, I just wonder if there's, if there's greater breadth of our expectations, what might be alternate ways of patterning ourselves into
2: certain conceptions of flourishing. And then I'm gonna have to say we're almost out of time. I think I'm going to yeah. highlight my interest in and in agreement with those general comments. I think that is, um, maybe the, to close with, uh, this is something that really challenges how, we, how do we as a community, uh, care for and love these people, okay, and and to really think about that in very different ways. And despite all the mystery about what happened before 1900, it should just at least create a little bit of a,
3: ooh,
2: <laughs> let's really think about that. Think of all the folks who talk about waking up in the middle of the night being problematic. That was actually pre-industrial people always woke up in the middle of the night. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. So anyway, just wanted to right. yeah. The world was different. Um, so uh, to me, it's uh, I find this really uh, this is i- i tell residents work for me this is the most important problem for which I was never trained yeah. Yeah. Um, because i wasn 't I, I had no formal training i 'm all self trained um, and but i by that i mean I learn a lot and just um, I've, I've, these people have taught me a lot not just about managing autism but seeing the world pretty differently and i 'm still very much starting that path um i think the really profound question here is, again, to think about love, what that means in this in our culture. And I was also going to come to your point that I, I really agree with, that especially the more, so much of American Christianity, focus on, on emotion and feeling and love, you know, with each other. It's sort of a culture of extroversion, I might say, too. Yeah. So I think thinking about how people love, what love means. Um, and then maybe one last thing that I'll just leave you with is, uh, you know, we'll, loving your neighbor and also loving the Lord. So there are some of these kids who are still, frankly, even with a lot of hard empathy, still hard to see how they're loving other people. Um, but I still, you still wonder what's going on inside them. Um, and I had to share a story, and I hope you guys don't hit, hit me for this, but just yesterday I talked to a family a child who is, he, he has verbal autism, but a lot of the behavioral traits. His mother, has had uh, cancer she has been treated for that in the evening a week ago he walked to his father and said mommy's going to die mm-hmm. and an hour later, no she didn't die I, I, she, an hour later she had an anaphylactic reaction from medication mm.
3: oh.
2: and what was going on there? Wow. <laughs> um, and the father is telling me this, he, he's not a believer I mean, he's just like I don't know what to make out of this and, and we're wanting to be pick up on something going on in the family. But some of these people have, I think we really struggle with that. I think there was once a time somebody, I, I felt like there I'm seeing the origin of the Holy Fool idea. <laughs> That's, uh, that some of these folks may really have very different ways of relating, even ways that are harder for us to grasp than being good at chess. Okay. So uh, I, I'm still thinking about that story. I kid you not. Mother's fine, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was treated, but yeah. well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: In two weeks, we'll meet again in this room on February 3rd uh, for Ray Barfield. will be leading our seminar, and the title is Imagination and the Secret to Enduring the Practice of Medicine. So I hope to see uh, The top secret's going to be revealed. We'll charge an entry fee. Yeah, yeah, right. So the Gnostic, group, Ray Barfield. Uh, we'll be here.
3: Thanks.